y'all. Um, and welcome back to the Don't Call It Soccer podcast. And the reason that I yelled so unconvincingly um, and really embarrassingly, I should take that back, um, is because we have a super wonderful and brilliant guest star on and he just adds to our quota of Texans. So I feel like I should just pop on my, my Stetson and y'all as much as possible to fit in with this wonderfully brilliant panel of people that we have. Preston Weatherington, what are you doing down there in the uh, great state of Texas? You know, uh, it's pretty much been same old, same old for me, wrapping up my semester of school so I can finally breathe and relax for a little bit. So doing good. Preston, you don't need school, really. Um, you just watch football all the time. That's fair. I mean, the thing is, I got one semester left. Nah. So if I'm out now, I mean, what's the point? <laughs> I, that's fair. All right. <laughs> And Emmett, you are still in Philly? Uh, I'm still at school at Northwestern here oh, for another month. All right. So it, could, it could be a while. It's still not warm yet. <laughs> you might get there. Trying to, the last time I was in Philadelphia, I think I had nine jackets on. So are you down to like three? Yeah, at this point of the year, just a few left. But uh, I had to break out my winter jacket last week because there was some sleet. Yeah, we had some hail in Brooklyn last week. So thank you for sending that my way. It's very gracious of you. And John Arnold, we are so excited and lucky to have you. You did, I think, the only podcast that I actually listened to when I was not on the subway, which is a big deal for me to to keep my headphones in when I was walking on the streets. So you are joining us from Texas, but you've been all over the place lately down in Mexico and following the Liga down there and the MLS. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I'm around a bit, but yeah, staying in the in the Dallas space for the playoffs, for the Ligia, just making sure I can see all the games and, and write about everything. But yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the uh, appreciate the invite. Are you a Dallas fan as well? Uh, no, sort of. I'm a fan of like the Dallas teams, except I'm a Chiefs fan in NFL, and then soccer. I really just uh, just cover it basically. So I, I, I pretty much stay as neutral as possible. So that's those are my allegiances. All right, so we're not going to gang up on anyone. Great. Um, our only rules, really, is you could say whatever you want to Emmett and Preston, but um, my teams have been doing pretty shitty lately, so we have to be very careful with my feelings because I'm emotionally fragile. Um, and that's it. I'll see what I can do. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Speaking, uh, should we? Just, I feel like we should just let's start south of the border this time, just to throw everything really off its head because right now, I think as of eight minutes ago of our recording time, um, the Ligisha is jumping into again, full swing. And, and I feel like every week we never really know what's going to happen, which is part of its wonderful charm and, and excitement. I, I feel like this is one of the only leagues that you could really say that about that at any given moment, everything can change. Do you have a game that you're most excited about for tonight? Yeah, I'm looking forward to the series between Tigres and Monterrey. I think that when you look at how Tigres has played this season, it's been really bad. Um, I'm not sure there's really a more eloquent way to say that. They've just been a poor team. But uh, Monterrey has been quality. The past two two weeks, though, have sort of turned that on its head. As you mentioned, you know, things change pretty quickly. Tigres has always had the depth. They've always had the talent. So they're going up against Monterrey in this series. And, and I'm fascinated to see exactly exactly what happens uh, because I think that's that's sort of the one I'm, I'm most curious about uh, to see how it goes because I think both teams are, are, are talented and have, uh, have a lot of opportunity to, to maybe go all the way. So I made a promise that I was only going to say Carlos Sanchez's name once, and this will be it for me, I think. But I have to ask, 
why isn't he getting more playing time? Are they using him strategically as sort of a, uh, I hate the term super sub, and I guess I have to do it because I just said it, but do you see him just not continuing with Monterrey because he's, because they're, they're changing their format because he's not fitting in as much? Is this a, a matter just of sort of fitness because of South American qualifiers taking him away this year? Um, or do you see him getting back in with the team? I think Mohamed has has really been able to use his depth. You know, he has a lot of attackers who are who are quality. Edwin Cardona was totally frozen out of the team last tournament because of a disagreement with the coach. He's back. Imichara has been playing well. Funes Mori is playing well. Pabon is is scoring loads and loads of goals. So I think that the 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 playing time is difficult to come by. Sanchez, you have to remember as well. You know, he definitely put country over club. In the last tournament, uh, last Clausura rather, when when Monterrey looked like they were going to roll to the title and then get to the final and suddenly you don't have Alpato Sanchez and you lose the final. So, I mean, I think that he's still maybe atoning for that a little bit. It's been a year. I don't think Mohamed is necessarily upset about that, but I think the fans, it still lingers in the memory. So, um, I I don't necessarily think that's the reason. I think it's more of a rotation thing for why he's not necessarily seeing a ton of time regularly, but we'll have to see how Mohamed chooses to deploy in the playoffs. Of course... That's if they can get past these first two games against Tigres. So I, I think he'll definitely play a role. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that role is going to be in these first two games, but uh, I, I think he's definitely going to be a factor for, for Reados. Going forward, it's interesting because Cardona is linked, and I think legitimately, uh, with a lot of teams from abroad. I've seen Spain. I've seen uh, uh, Germany as well, the Bundesliga. So um, who knows? I think where he goes maybe impacts what exactly they do and, and how much of a attacking depth they try and keep around in the summer. So... I will not allow myself to say his name anymore, but that was really great to keep an eye on, um, selfishly for me as well. Let's sort of talk about another um, standout player, but also this really interesting top and bottom match, which I'm really looking forward to. And Preston, I think might be one of your tops as well, unless I'm putting words into your mouth. But this Tijuana Morelia face-off really is looking to be a really exciting one. I think in terms of talent, you've got Ruidias, but also in terms of how, how these teams are doing in the the momentum that they both have behind them. Yeah, well, certainly Menorcas, I think, is the team that probably enters the playoff on the biggest high. I mean, they legitimately, as you mentioned, everything changed so quickly on that final week. You know, They legitimately went from being relegated to the second division to within a minute, not only not being relegated, but making the playoffs. And that goal also gave Raul Ruiz, uh, the Peruvian, the, the gold title, the scoring title for the second tournament in a row. So, you know, I, I think they're going to be obviously very up for this game. But you look at Tijuana, they, you know, secured their own bit of history. They're the first team in the short tournament era to win the regular season back-to-back tournaments. Okay, that's great. But this league is decided in the playoffs. And last time in the playoffs, Tijuana went to Leon and they got destroyed and they had no chance after that, really. They even came back in the second leg of that quarterfinal series, but eventually capitulated. Uh, so I think that Miguel Herrera has been prioritizing the Ligia for the past three, four weeks. He's been resting key players. He's been uh, sort of uh, not giving much away tactically, uh, although, you know, you sort of know what his teams are going to do. But uh, I think it's a series that Tijuana has been looking forward to, no matter who the opponent was going to be for quite some time. So definitely the motivation levels will be high. What, what I'm a little bit concerned about is I don't know that Morelia, it, they, they stayed in the division, they legitimately made the playoffs, but I'm not so sure that they have the depth uh, that you're going to need with these games coming fast and furious. I think they probably expended a lot uh, as they needed to on Saturday against Monterrey. 
then now they have to play Thursday, Sunday. Uh, I, I'm a little maybe skeptical about uh, exactly how well they can they can hold with Cholos because I think they're they're a well-rested team. They're a team that's been looking at this for a long time. So we'll definitely see how it goes. But the momentum, both of these teams certainly enter on a high, which you can't say about the series uh, between the Monterrey teams nor the Guadalajara teams. So it, certainly the the playoff series where you know if you want to look at playoffs are all about the team who gets hot at the right time. Those are two prime candidates. How much for Morelia can this be considered any kind of like moral victory without this particular win? Which just getting in the playoffs. Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty big. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's a complicated situation for the club, I think, because on the one hand, of course, you don't want to go down. Uh, Of course you want to stay in the top division, but on the other, it's, it's a club where, you know, there's always been questions, I guess, in, in the past several years. But they've had good tournaments recently, so they're not one of the teams that's in danger uh, necessarily for the next two tournaments. So I think the fact that you can maybe put the relegation behind uh, and look toward the playoffs could be a huge boost. I mean, it's obviously the relegation, when you're in that race, especially in Mexico where only one team goes down, it just looms huge because you don't really have a good impression of, of exactly who's going to be in the in the mix until sort of the final, I guess, two months, three months maybe. I mean, you've got... You kind of know what it looks like and you can look at the table week to week, but I think it really gets, you know, serious the last two months. So the fact that they don't have to look at that now, now can focus on maybe not only not getting sent down, but focus on something positive, I think definitely helps the morale. You know, the the team has done a good, good job. Rui Diaz has been standout. They need someone besides him to kind of step up and score because he scored almost 50% of their goals. He scored nine goals. I think they had 19 on the season. But Roberto Hernandez, the interim manager, he maybe he's coaching for the job and I think he deserves it with with the the boost that he got with the team from the team in the last uh, last month or so so I definitely think that this is a team where they're going to be pleased that they don't have to be looking over their shoulder anymore for the next several months so that's my next question is if they stay up where are they going to have to sort of scramble or or start planning on another another big name or another sort of striker or support for Rui Diaz so he doesn't have to field so much of the upfront pressure and yeah well not only not only do i think they would be wise to sign someone else who can help him although they they had a little bit of a boost from a couple other players at the start of the year but they everyone sort of fell off you saw gaston lescano the argentine who i think is on loan from chilean football as well you know he scored uh for the first time in in quite some time in that uh morel in that monterrey game but i would be surprised quite frankly if ruidias ends up being in Morelia still after this tournament. There's been rumors that he's going to Santos, rumors that he could, you know, be getting a look from America, and even rumors from across the pond in the, you know, uh, in Europe, teams like Rangers supposedly in in for him as well. So I I would be surprised if he still finds himself there. So obviously you're not going to be able to pin on him. They definitely got some work to do this summer. And while because of the system and because of the way the Mexican relegation system works, so the past six tournaments being taken into account, I think the bottom, whoever's relegated will have difficult, or whoever's promoted will have difficulty. Veracruz, uh, Atlas, and Cruz Azul, I think, are the bottom teams. So they get a little bit of breathing room. At the same time, it was very real, the, the, the feeling of relegation around this team. So I think you definitely want to look, if you can. Uh, you probably want to bring in a couple couple new players, and I think attack is probably where to go because, uh, as I mentioned, I think Roberto Hernandez has really sorted this back line out. It's just about finding players who can score now, and if you don't have Ruiz Diaz, who scored 
nearly 50% of your goals, uh, you're going to be in big trouble. So it, it'll be an interesting summer. And who knows? Maybe they make a little run for it. And, and uh, you know, there's all sorts of momentum behind them. And there's all sorts of players who want to play for them. And maybe, you know, all sorts of money in the club. But I, I would be a little surprised if they were able to make a, a deep run. I think this Tijuana team comes in well-balanced and hungry. So I, it's going to be an interesting series and, and interesting to watch the future of that club. Do we know what's the financial situation between relegation and, and staying up? Is there a huge loss in relegation? I don't know exactly. You know, the numbers are definitely not as uh, easy to obtain as they are in some of the European leagues where you know exactly how much the parachute payment is and know exactly how much the revenue is, etc. What I do know is that there are teams regularly uh, having difficulty staying in operation in the second division. Uh, so you'd have to think that that the margins are pretty significant between how much money gets made. I mean, the TV contract alone in Liga Mekis is pretty lucrative, sponsorship, etc. So uh, I I think that Chiapas, the team that did get sent down, they were already trying to be uh, trying to find a new owner. They were having difficulty playing their players, uh, paying their players. I don't I don't really love uh, their situation. I'm not sure that uh, Carlos Chargoy, who who owns uh, Pueblo as well, is trying to sell one or both of his teams. Uh, I don't really feel great about their situation, um, so we're going to have to see. I, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but but it certainly is a huge hit if you get sent down. And honestly, look, I mean, this is a system that's designed to sort of keep the teams up. You know, it's it's tough to get sent down. You almost have to try to be bad, I think, because you only get one team sent down every two tournaments. And and it takes the last six tournaments into account. So you got to be bad over a long period of time unless you're the newly promoted team. So it, it's something where it is a huge hit. But at the same time, you can sort of anticipate it and spend some money in the club if you have those resources. But I don't think Chiapas did. You know, they couldn't even play their players for a minute there. So I I would be surprised if they're in good if they're on good footing in the next couple of years. It's going to be rough. Of course, you know, it's a beautiful area. It's a nice part of Mexico, a part where they don't have a, a ton of other football clubs. So it would be a shame. You know, I'm not I'm not rooting for Chiapas to fold or anything like that. I just I, I, I see some rocky uh, times ahead for them. Chiwas has this huge storied history. How much is this is going to help them versus Atlas and how much of Atlas sort of I don't want to use desperation, but. How much is desire going to come into play on, on both of these clubs' sides um, in, in, in two different ways in this match? And can you the, fix my sentence there and explain what I meant? Because that was so think, poorly done on my half. I, I think one of the big things that helps Chivas, and you mentioned the history that the club has, you know, they're, they're one of the most successful teams. They're just behind America as far as uh, league championships won. They have a huge fan base everywhere internationally you know as well as just in Guadalajara but I think one of the the influences that helps really I was down at the Clásico Tapatio uh, during the regular season it was an Alice home game at the Estadio Jalisco but it's where Chivas used to play you know the team shared the ground for quite some time and there's still a huge base of Chivas fans as well around the center of the city where, where the Jalisco is so I think that they essentially that game and I'm not sure how they're doing the playoff ticketing but I would imagine this upcoming match as well was sort of like a neutral site game in that you had fans from both sides, you know, rooting for each other. The last time we saw these teams meet in the Ligia, the Atlas fans, there's a pitch invasion after uh, Marco Fabian's hat trick. It became clear that, you know, Chivas was going to eliminate Atlas. He saw some bad behavior. You know, hopefully we don't see that. But I think we do see that Chivas feels comfortable in the Estadio Jalisco, uh, where other teams don't. You know, Chiapas was able to get a win there this weekend. Other than that, only Chivas beat Atlas during the regular season at home. So, 
not only do you have the little bit of an advantage maybe of playing not necessarily a true road game if you achieve us, but you also have a ton of desire to get the double. You know, they haven't won a league title in a while. Almeida's won the Copa, the Copa MX twice with them, including this season. So they would love to get that. Now, that being said, they're not in great form. They haven't won in the last five games. Three of those are draws, but, you know, you, you still like to get three points going into it. And they're missing players like Rodolfo Pizarro and, and Angel Zaldivar to injury. So I think a lot of the burden falls on Alan Pulido. He's got to score some goals. But unfortunately for him, it hasn't been that easy because Atlas is a club where after Rafa Marquez was injured, it looked like they might be dead in the water. And then suddenly they've started finding some solutions. You know, they've been able to get they've gotten big contributions out of Javier Salas, the, the Mexican uh, in midfield. And also putting Luis Robles in as sort of a, a protector and sort of linking the defensive uh, players with the midfield, which was what Marquez, of course, was so good at doing for Atlas uh, before he got hurt. So I, I think they've sort of found a way to smooth over the cracks. I think that Profe Cruz, the manager there, deserves uh, a, a lot of praise for getting this team from what looked like it was going to be a pretty disappointing campaign into the playoffs. Chivas, to me, has a better squad. Um, and to me, you know, Almeida is, is probably a better tactician than Pepe Cruz. But at the same time, I mean, it's 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 an open series. You know, I think that, that you mentioned desire, and I think that there's a lot of desire for Atlas, a team that's only won one championship before, uh, a team that a lot of people are counting out to sort of, uh, you know, make a make an impact here, and and we'll see if they're able to do it. It's going to be a fun series. Like I said, hopefully the off field, uh, hopefully the passion sort of is is beautiful and fun to watch without spilling over into the uh, into the danger zone. So we'll have to watch how it goes. But I think it's a series with with both teams that have a lot of desire, uh, maybe for different reasons. I think what's really interesting on this one, and I'm impressed and jump jump in here, but you know, Chivas on both sides of this of the border has a sense of being like the, the ubiquitous Mexican league team that, you know, even here in New York, a lot of the times, you know, you see Mexican national jerseys, but you see a lot of Chi West jerseys. That that's, that's the sort of biggest club team in terms of marketing, um, in terms of possibly club history. Um, but that gives it a, you know, it makes it easy to support. It also makes it a, um, an easy club scapegoat. And I spoke to, you know, my uncle is, is one of a, a pretty big family from Mexico city and his footballing culture in, in his own words, um, translated to English has always been anyone but Chiwas because he, they've always been seen as sort of this big, um, empire when his team is not playing that's who he wants to lose. It's just he'll root for anyone who's playing against Chiwa. So this this history, I think, is is an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to agree with that. Uh, here, I mean, I mean, you're right. There's a ton. There's tons of Chivas fans uh, pretty much anywhere that you'd go. Chivas was really the first Mexican side that that I really learned about uh, in my apartment complex alone. I've seen three Chivas jerseys, and oddly enough, a Veracruz jersey. So uh, Chivas is very popular down here and I'm I mean I'm admittedly fairly new to following Liga MX and whenever I found out that it's been quite a few years since uh Chivas has won uh has won the tournaments so that I was personally pretty surprised at it just because of uh how big their how big their marketing is and how like how big of a club they are historically I was uh I was I was pretty surprised to see that they have a bit of a trophy drought in the league. Yeah, it's it's this is this is I think one one to watch, and I wonder the reaction of Chivas fans if if they don't 
get a good reaction, a, a good result from this one. Although it's going to be an interesting conversation with my uncle afterwards if they do. Um, let's let's take a quick peek at, at one of Manu's favorite clubs and selfishly, again, one of mine. Oh God, I'm being so nationalistic in this one, but this is uh, Toluca and Santa Laguna. Um, and this one, you guys, Santos Laguna, again, has just been sort of this, has this fantastic strategy of being really solid, but quietly solid. Um, so you don't notice how well they're doing, but you do notice how well Jonathan Rodriguez is doing, especially in Uruguayan newspapers who love him so much and are saying he's like the, I don't know, next Luis Suarez in one small newspaper that maybe happened to come from the town where he's from or, you know, uh, what do you guys, what do you, what are you seeing in this, out of this match and maybe out of Rodriguez's future with the club? He's been pretty important. I mean, uh, this is a Santos team that it, it was shocking, uh, what they were, the run they were putting together. Uh, they drew 11 times this year and, if I'm not mistaken, I sort of lost track, but at the first nine, the first draw they had in the season was a scoreless draw with Tigres. The next eight, the next eight draws they had, they were ahead in every single one of those games. So I'm not sure what the streak ended up being. Uh, I think they had to come back for this most recent one. But this is a team that is able to find the back of the net, obviously. However, also loves to give away leads. The other interesting thing that I think is going to be fun to watch as part of the reason that Ligia is interesting is because you know you have the two-legged series but these two teams just played each other they closed out uh, the tournament against each other so uh, I think that it's, it's going to be interesting to watch it was a really physical game there are a couple of players uh, who got sent off and are going to be uh, fulfilling suspensions during the first leg of uh, of their meeting I think that Santos is without uh, Johnny and uh, Sandoval and Toluca's without someone as well. I think Jesus Mendez. So it's going to be, uh, you know, some shorthanded teams in the first leg and also a rematch of a game that just happened. It was pretty ugly. So, you know, you'd expect the fireworks to come from those classicals from the, either the Regio or the Tapatio. But it's also possible that these two teams, you know, with the with the sort of uh, physical and bitter game fresh in their minds, maybe we see a little bit of uh, physicality there as well. You know, I don't know how well that bodes for, for Rodriguez because... Uh, you know, you can mix it up a little bit, but I think if you're, you know, the Toluca latching down and especially the fact that they're a little, I think, stronger on defense than they are going forward, that's going to be interesting. Um, the other thing is that they're starting to get some of the players back from suspension. Um, Enrico Triviero, who was suspended for the rest of the regular season, then all the season, and then back to just the regular season when the Court of Arbitration for Sport decided that those penalties were too heavy-handed. Is he ready to go? I don't know. Ruben Samueza, we'll see if he's... Uh, I'm not 100% sure when he's back, but we'll see whenever he's uh, he's available if Toluca, um, you know, keep it going in the playoffs. So it's going to be interesting to see how those players integrate, you know, back in the uh, back in the group because this is uh, yeah, it's 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 a weird series to me. Like I said, I, I just think that those two teams having played each other recently, Santos being as good as they've been at getting draws, but not necessarily finding all three points. I, I don't know. They've also been really bad at home. I guess I'm sort of giving uh, away from home. I, I guess I'm giving a little bit of the advantage to Toluca in this one, uh, just based on the fact that uh, I haven't been convinced by Santos. They've, they've, they've been average to me. I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, Santos have been really fun to watch as a neutral fan um, because, again, they're pretty top-heavy. Their games go end-to-end because they're not so defensive-minded. Um, and you know, they, they, they play like my preschoolers a little bit. They have no willpower or self-control. However, there are some real bursts of creativity 
that come from unexpected places. So nobody really maintains their position and that gives them a lot of room to run and I think surprise opposing teams. And so you never really know what you're going to get. And I think that sometimes coaches and teams don't know how to prepare for them. Um, I do wonder though how the the lifting of the suspension on Torriero is going to, is that going to be seen as sort of like a, a, a team victory in a way is, is whether or not he's fit, he's match fit or he's fit for 90 minutes. Are they going to put him on the field as sort of like a, you know, a, a, mm-hmm. a welcome back? Is that going to help them mentally? Yeah, I think probably so. I mean, you know, it, I think if you're those players in the locker room, whether this is the case or not, you know, we've all been in, in situations playing sports or what have you, where, you know, you feel unjustly treated by the referees, by the federation, by whoever it is. So I think that there is a little bit of, uh, especially after Sambuesa and him were both given such long suspensions, to me, not necessarily undeservedly in the case of Rubens, but, uh, you know, still, I think if you're one of those Toluca players, oh, I can't believe this, they're all against us, how could they do this to us, etc. And then suddenly those two guys are back. You know, I, I do think it's a boost. I think it's something that, that does excite you. But again, I'm, I'm really interested to see how they integrate. You know, are they going to be able to play as they were? Because this is a team that started off really well also. You know, this it's it's their hundredth, uh, it's their centennial, their hundredth year. It's a big deal in Mexico. A lot of clubs have celebrated it. Some with more success than others. America wasn't able to win the championship in theirs. Uh, Pachuca, Chivas both did in theirs. So it, it's, it's something that's been a big... Mark and so Toluca, which isn't thought of necessarily as a club with you know it doesn't it's not one of those Chivas it's not a team that markets itself you don't see a ton of shirts in the United States but it is a team that does have a long history so uh, to me I'm really fascinated to see if those players are able to get back on the field and, and I'll pull in the same direction for something that would mean a lot to to not only the, the the you know club and the directors but also I think the people of the city I think it would be a big deal if the Red Devils are able to get through. I don't love them for the title necessarily, but like I said, I, I have to give them a little bit of an edge over Santos, maybe a little bit because of the motivation and, and I think the also boost in quality that they get if those two suspended guys are, are back and still in uh, match condition. Um, let's take a, a super trip north. A super trip north. You guys are going to have to talk more because my eloquence has just flown out every window I have in my apartment. Um, I couldn't even get the geography right on there. Um, let's go really far north. How's that for a sentence? But to another rematch of sorts to Toronto and Seattle, which um, I don't know if the game was more um, physical than the commentary on this one. Can I ask you guys a weird question? What channel were you watching this on? Who was commenting on your screens? There's there's like no non jerk way for me to say this uh i saw this game at the gym <laughs> i didn't have any sound <laughs> that was the best way to watch it john arnold well done no sound was definitely the way to go because can i i'm gonna sound jerky on this one i won't name names here but can i just can i make a call for unbiased commentators in the mls because i i, I want to know why everyone hates seattle and if you can put that aside while you are commentating on a game, those are two questions. What the deal is with the with the intense Seattle hatred, and if commentators who used to how do I, who used to be players, I'm going to try to get diplomatic here. It's not going to work in certain positions. Can perhaps put aside their bias when positions that they used to 
play in get red carded and they feel like that was unjust. How's that? Did that work? Did I do that okay? It works. Great. Uh, no idea who you're talking about. Okay, good. Um, so, um, I mean, what do you think of this match, this Toronto-Seattle rematch of the final? I think the big story for me was uh, Toronto FC head coach Greg Vanny showing that his squad, like he said, actually has the most most depth in the MLS and by a pretty large margin. He uh, left behind Sebastian Giovinco, uh, Stephen Betashore, uh, two other players, and they still managed to you know get revenge in a rematch even though he wasn't uh, prioritizing this game. And that's just really impressive to me. And despite you know a really good goalkeeping performance from uh, Seattle, there was the one huge save that I'm sure you all saw the replay of. But outside of that, it was really good. Kind of a stale match, but when you can win on the road you know, with depth, that just shows their team is doing really well right now. And Toronto FC, to me, looks like the best team so far. I think what we saw was sort of a game of two halves. You know, the first half, both teams were pretty quick on the counterattack. And then the second half was super chippy um, and, and pretty stop-start. Um, Preston, what did you see in this one? Definitely agree on the tale of two halves. Uh, I think Seattle was starting to feel the pressure that they were uh, that they were down, that they ended up being a little bit more physical than what they usually are. And, you know, I mean, it's it's a high-intense game because it's a rematch of the MLS Cup Final. Seattle got a lot of uh, got a lot of uh, got a lot of issues. People saying that uh, that they didn't necessarily deserve the the cup last year, that they didn't have a shot on goal. They were wanting to prove the doubters wrong, and once they went down, uh, they didn't. I didn't see too much from Seattle, so they decided to go physical. And I, I, I want to echo what Amit said about uh, Toronto's depth. That's uh, it's truly impressive with all the people that they that they left behind and be able to pull out a result at a very intimidating stadium. With the way that Seattle fans are, they love to they love to intimidate the away fans and want to uh, make it very difficult for them. And Toronto uh, has been very impressive as of late. Yeah, and I think part of the lack of creative spark for Seattle was starting Will Bruin up top, who's a pretty unspectacular MLS forward. And Morris wasn't playing up top as he usually does, and he gives them much more spark up there. And Dempsey was kind of playing right in behind. And like you said, they were fine. And when they went down, they really came at Toronto. But just lacking a little bit of inventiveness. And Toronto did a good job of really packing the back line to prevent Ladero from doing what he usually has done ever since he came into the league, being one of the best playmakers. I promise I didn't um, bribe them to say anything good about Uruguayans, John. Um, what, what were you seeing from your position at the gym? <laughs> uh, no, I think that, you know, you look at this game and it's the same story for Seattle. I mean, they, they've had a lot of games this season where they have chances, but they haven't necessarily had good chances. Um, I'm not really sure. And I don't think Brian Schmetzer is sure exactly what's the, the, the difference here, because I think, you know, Will Bruin played well when he was playing that position in the previous game. And, and all of a sudden now it didn't look like anything was really going for them. You know, I think this is a team that has the, the talent and the depth, but, you know, I think, Toronto not only coming on on the you know second game of the week, but the second game of the week without some of their top players, and the fact that this was a game game at a weird time, sort of I think, especially I mean Toronto maybe they get a little bit of an advantage for that since they're used to playing afternoon games, but it, it was pretty early, um, so I think that that can sometimes play with players' minds and and even your body, you know, if you're used to going out at, at night. So 
Uh, all of that to me added up to a game that that I was really impressed with Toronto in because they were able to go into a difficult place to win uh, and get a victory against a team that was presumably better rested. So I think it was a credit to their depth as well, like uh, like I mentioned. And and uh, ultimately, Greg Vanny has has got a smile on his face this week. Although I think they're back in action again uh, Wednesday night, so <laughs> I think it's a, a short rest, no no rest of the wicked. Yeah, I, I wonder what we're going to see from Seattle going forward because in his post-match interview definitely heard the frustration and, and the confusion. You guys are right from, from Schmetzer. Amit, you want to talk about your beloved union? Well, it's just a huge win for the team. <laughs> they haven't won since August 27th of 2016, over 250 days without a win. And, you know, when you don't win, the narrative starts to get really messy and tensions start to boil. You start to ask yourself, are we being led in the right direction? It's kind of a rebuild when they brought in a, a new manager, people thought not sorry, new manager like a the GM, I guess equivalent. And people started to say, "Is Jim Curtin the man? Is Alejandro Bedoya that good?" And you know, one win doesn't change those questions, but it just shows what happens when the Union play a good game. They can compete with just about anyone. Um, and CJ Sapong right now is on track to have his best ever year in goals. His his highest ever is nine. I think he's got seven so far. First career hat trick. And a lot of what's working for the union was a lot of crosses, which, you know, doesn't really seem to be their strength. I don't think they're a team that should be crossing the ball too much. But Fabian Herbers played really well down the right wing. And the back line turned in another good performance. And, you know, when you have Andre Blake, who was goalie of the year last year, you can kind of expect, you know, a decent amount of clean sheets. But I was very impressed that they were able to shut out the Red Bulls, who, again, are a really prolific offense. Okay, so what are you guys going to do going forward to keep to make this into a streak, to keep this going? I think it, it has to start with, you know, the midfielders playing in their right positions. Bedoya, he's had a lot of, uh, you know, fanfare in his career. He wants to play in the middle. He's played on the right. He's never in the right spot. He's not really a number 10. He's more of a number 8. And he needs. I think he needs to be in that 8 spot for the Union to play well. And they just need to see some more inventiveness from their front four. I don't... Personally, I don't think Fabian Herbers is that good, but that's just my my personal preference. Um, Chris Pontius needs to keep playing uh, in the form he was at last year that got him comeback player of the year. He had the the knockdown header assist for one of Sapong's goals, and if he does that, then they're fine. The thing is they play a really conservative style. They kind of sit back, and when they go forward, there's almost no link between Sapong and the rest of the midfield. And if Bedoy is playing well in the number eight spot, he can help that be linked. And that's just their key going forward. I think their defense will be fine, and they need to be mentally strong. You can't concede a three-goal lead at home like they did uh, earlier this season to Montreal. So since you mentioned Philadelphia and New York, um, well done on the seamless transition there. I want to bring up something that that you know some of us have been talking about before. Um, John, I went to the Red Bull Chicago match um wearing my now vintage metro stars clint mathis jersey um, and sat in my usual metro star spot um and i was sort of disappointed in myself to feel disappointed the stadium was i would say if not half chicago fans um then you know pretty full of people who were there either to see schweinsteiger or maybe there to to welcome back McCarty, but there were not the same amount of, of sort of diehard um, grassroots Metro Stars fans that there used to be. I think I 
started noticing this around the time that um, NYCFC came into being. And I'm not blaming this on NYCFC, but I think I'm blaming this on this sort of um, contrived um, rival thing that MLS seems to have always done. So the Red Bulls, when they were the Metro Stars, had a, a definite rivalry with DC. Um, and it was, you know, loud and it was intense and it was really fun to yell at when we were playing each other. And it, there were reasons behind it. And, you know, it was player trading and it was because DC always beat the crap out of us. And, you know, um, it was a real sports rivalry. Um, for, you know, to some extent, it happened between, um, the Metro Stars and New England because of geography. But I think that when NYCFC came to Yankee Stadium, marketing or whoever does these things sort of latched onto this idea of a Hudson River Derby or a, you know, got super excited that we could paint the town red or paint the town blue and ran with it. And you guys could absolutely disagree with me, um, but it took away a little bit from the culture of the teams themselves, that they, they're, they're, there's just that, that it's no more than just New York, although you're in New Jersey, um, is red or blue, that that's the majority of the hashtags you see or the bands, the banners that you see are that, and you lose a little bit of what else is there. Um, so, you know, I know that there are others as well. So I really want to get your opinions on sort of fan culture and club culture and this, this, the rivalries that are real and what, whether that matters or not. And the rivalries that the league sort of seems to be creating for whatever reasons. I think one thing that's tough is having a league in America where, you know, the other, you know, big four leagues um, all have these rivalries that have grown from, years of you know proximity and like great matchups and the mls is still relatively young compared to everyone else and compared to other leagues around the world and the way i think you build organically build rivalries you have great games between teams and then also there's there's great local animosity and that's you know you see that all different regions around but the thing that's tough with the city is when one team comes in later you know there's no narrative and I think it's exactly what you said. It just becomes paint the town red, paint the town blue. But I think it has to grow. I think the only way it'll get better is if the Red Bulls and New York FC just play a bunch of really good games and, you know, the players like really get into it and you see some passion on the field. And that, I think, can lead to to real rivalries. But until that happens, you know, I, I do agree it feels forced. But that's what the MLS kind of has to do just because they, they have to build these as rivalries until it actually happens. And I, I don't blame them for doing that, but I definitely agree that it feels a little sterile right now. I was going to say, I, I get that to a degree, um, but with the I mean, with these newer clubs having to create these rivalries, I, I, I do feel like that they need, do need to come a little bit more organically. Like the New York City FC and the Orlando rivalry, uh, really the only thing that they have that's really truly a rivalry is that they joined the league in the same year. Um, that I mean, there hasn't been that much to it. Uh, exactly. There is nothing to it, in my opinion, yeah. 
I mean, I've, I mean, there have been, some, I mean, I will say that there have been some pretty good games uh, between the two New York clubs. I mean, like that seven, that seven nil uh, for the Red Bulls. That was, I, I watched that game, and that was uh, an unbelievable game to see. And I mean, I, I do feel like that these rivalries do need to come more out of proximity. Or, uh, I mean, I'm going to use Dallas as an example. Historically, there's been a rivalry between Dallas and Colorado due to their uh, consecutive years of seeing each other in the playoffs. More, more of late, that's been with Seattle seeing these seeing each other in the Western Conference semifinals for the past three seasons. And because of that, you've seen uh, a bit of a rivalry come about because uh, currently Seattle has the upper hand two two wins to one, but uh, facing each other in these higher profile games that creates animosity between the two fans, between the two teams, and having it come more about naturally rather than these, uh, in a sense, these league-mandated rivalries, those seem to be the ones that last the longest. But I also think there's a difference between just general distaste for a team, whether it's from supporters or players or what have you, and like a, a rivalry or a, a classic or whatever you want to call it. I mean, like if you look at the you know traditional sports, you know, in Phoenix, the Suns fans hate the Spurs. You wouldn't necessarily call that a rivalry, but they do not like each other. They don't like the Spurs because, you know, as Preston mentions, you know, some past playoff exits, some animosity, some incidents that happened in the in the course of games and that sort of thing. I mean, I think that stuff does happen. Um, but I think also, you know, on the one hand, I get it. Like, you don't want the league feeding you. This is how you should feel. This is what these, you know, this is the team that this team doesn't like, what have you. But at the same time, if you're Major League Soccer, like, you have to sort of, the hardcore fans already know. And they know how they feel. And they know they hate this team or that team. But if you're just trying to get people to tune in on a weekend, I mean, a rivalry game is something that everyone can get into. I'm not a huge hockey fan, but they, when they do the Wednesday night rivalry or whatever it is, like, I'm more likely to tune in. I think it's the same way. And especially intra-city. I mean, LAFC and the Galaxy look like whether or not the fans are actually having any sort of feeling about each other, the teams have any sort of animosity it's going to be a, a, a rivalry or at least build as such, whether you want to call it that or not. I mean, it just, especially in football, you know, where the culture is, you know, where I cover in Mexico, you know, the Clásico Tapatio, who's best in Guadalajara, the Clásico Regio, who's best in Monterrey, the Clásico Joven, you know, Cruz Azul in America, the Mexico City teams. And of course, like, you know, the England ones and, and Milan, whatever. I mean, the, anytime you have two teams in the same market, they're going to have this sort of you know, rivalry. And I think it's very easy. It's an easy angle for MLS to market. And so, of course, I think they're going to try and capitalize on that anytime they can. But like, also, does it matter? Like, <laughs> if MLS says it's a rivalry, and you don't feel like it is, then uh, okay. I guess I'm cool with that. I don't know. I, I think it's okay. That's Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's It's all what the fans make of it. And I think the best rivalries that you'll see will be the ones not that the MLS creates, but the ones that the supporter groups feel real animosity and like, the ones that are fueled by a bunch of playoff meetings or a bunch of really good games where the players themselves feel the most motivated when the players come out and treat it like a rivalry game. That's what, that's what's fun because then you can both get into it and you see the, them caring about it on the field. And if, it takes if, time, right? Yeah, like exactly. you mentioned, okay, repeated playoff meetings, but look like this is a young league and some of these teams, you know, look, NYCFC has only existed for, you know, two years, whatever. So, I mean, like it, it's going to take time for these to develop. And I understand it's weird when MLS says this is a rivalry and this team is just now existing, but maybe over time it develops. Preston, you mentioned sort of a FC Dallas's rivals back in the day, you know, it was the Brimstone Cup with Chicago. Now, does anyone really care about that? I mean, 
you want to beat the fire and vice versa. The fire want to beat FC Dallas, but obviously the fire have their eyes set on different rivals. FC Dallas had their eyes set on different rivals. So these things are going to change and evolve over time as well. And, and, you know, I, I think it's something where it's another growing pain of a young league, but if we can find some consistency as a sort of a soccer nation, I guess, uh, and, and just over time, let these things happen. Yeah, maybe it's better, but I think the the league is going to take every opportunity they can to, to market it. Sometimes I think you just sort of have to, especially the people who are listening to this podcast, who love the league already who already know how they feel i think you just sort of have to realize that like that i'm not in the target market for this this isn't for me you know yeah they're they're gonna sort of put this on tv and and make you know viral videos or whatever around this if i'm not in the audience if i don't agree you know i just have to understand this is gonna happen i I don't know i think it's just a young league and as it, it continues to grow those rivalries will will emerge, and and as uh, as we talked about, you know, it, it takes time. I mean, it mentions that you know you need playoff meetings sometimes. You can't have many playoff meetings if you only have a team that's four or five, six years old. So I, I think it's something that maybe is a problem that goes away over over time. Part of this is scheduling too, and I realized this the other day when I looked ahead to see when I would next get to see Mike Petke, and realized that they don't come to the Red Bulls for another year and two months, which is strange and doesn't happen in a lot of other leagues, but is sort of the way that right now MLS is structured, that we don't get to see a lot of teams for a very long time um, because of our scheduling. Yeah, one thing that's definitely weird is that schedule because, you know, in in the other American sports league, the teams that are in proximity to you, kind of in divisions, you end up playing them a lot. You know, in football, you play your division twice. In basketball... We call that the wrong football, I meant, so get it right. American football... (laughs) In basketball, it's four or five times. In hockey, same thing. And in the the sport where they hit balls with uh, a bat, uh, you play your teams in division seven teams t- seventeen times each. Is that cricket? And you know baseball. But thank you. Uh, when when that happens, you that's how it kind of happens. And in, in the MLS, you know, one thing they're doing is that you play you know the teams close to you more often than not. But it also kind of deprives you. To, to develop a, a rivalry with a team that might not be close to you, if, say, you meet them in the playoffs and you have a really good a matchup, but then you don't get to play the next year because the MLS doesn't – you don't get to see them because you don't get a home-and-home home at every stadium like is traditional with a lot of leagues. And that would be a cool thing for the league to do, but it's also really hard when the travel schedule in America is just ridiculous because of the geography of the country. Yeah, and to add, to add on top of that, uh, if I'm not mistaken – the way that the scheduling is structured is that uh, with whenever you're, let's say that you're in the Western Conference, you play you play those teams in the Western Conference twice, uh, sometimes three times, and then you play each Eastern Conference team once, and it alternates home and away. So that I guess that sort of allows it for for it to be a little bit more even over the course of several years. Uh, but I'm looking like that's it. I think you're, you're actually very right on that. And that's a very American way to schedule it. That's like just so in line with the way they've done it in football, in college sports. That's it's, that's the mindset of approaching that. And then the way it's to manage your travel schedule as easy as possible. It definitely helps it. Uh, whenever it comes to the team that you play three times, uh, that's whenever it gets a little bit funky because, uh, I've looked at Dallas's schedule uh, very intensely play Houston three times, obviously because that's just a couple hundred miles away. But for the last couple of seasons, Dallas has played Seattle three times, 
which is probably, besides Vancouver, the farthest city away from Dallas in the Western Conference. So uh, that's whenever it gets that's whenever it gets a little bit weird, and I start to question uh, MLS's scheduling structure. Uh, whether that improves down the road, whenever they, I guess, quote unquote, reach their full expansion uh, to 28 teams or however many they decide to do, however they get that to work out, hopefully they, uh, hopefully that that they keep the travel schedules in mind. Yeah, and one thing that we've all alluded to is that, frankly, expansion teams make it hard to develop rivalries. It's really hard for those teams that come in, and it's really hard for the other teams because you don't. You don't you're just used to seeing them. And when you add more teams, it makes that schedule more complicated because when you have 28 teams, you can't play every team twice. That's that's just impossible. You know, the lower divisions of England have 24 and they have a 46 game regular season. And that's just not realistic. But outside of that, then what are you going to do? You might have to leave some teams off. You don't get to see some teams. It just becomes harder to develop those rivalries. Unless you give me what I want and uh, do promotion relegation. But that is for another podcast before I get yelled at. I think, guys, did we leave anything out on either side of the border? FC Dallas, very good. (laughs) That's a good bumper sticker. You going to elaborate on that at all? Or is that what we got? um, I mean, they're still undefeated. Uh, (laughs) Their offense is, is honestly awesome and... I you know I said earlier Toronto might be the best team overall and that's talking about their depth but you know you know in a one off game you know not accounting for the whole rigors of the entire season FC Dallas is super talented and uh, Max Aruti I'm probably butchering that name has been really impressive all year and is one of the has been one of the best players in the league so far. Are you just saying this because we have two Texans now? No, I, I just think it's impressive. They're still the only one undefeated, the only undefeated ones, because just recently Union were the only team without a win. So ah, so they, it's get, the they get props side. for that. All right, um, and you know, it's, I was gonna say it's definitely interesting uh, because Dallas did bring in a two million dollar striker, but in a sense, it sort of turned Maxi into a bit of a two million dollar striker as Christian Coleman is has been kept on the bench now because Yaruti has been he's been on fire and he's. He's on pace to score, I believe it's 24 goals this season if he keeps up his current form. Easy, easy, easy. (laughs) Let me finish. Let me finish. With with Maxi Uruzzi, the way that he's been historically, he's a very streaky player. And and whenever you look at the course of a full season, uh, I think seeing Uruzzi get 12 to 15 goals, I think that'd be a very good season for him uh, because he is going to hit a slump at some point this season. And it could be whenever they fully shift to a, to a two-striker system, whenever Coleman finally gets his first goal, uh, because uh, having that one-striker system, it, it seems to benefit, benefit him with, uh, with his defensive work rate. Yeah, I think a, another piece of news, not to move it along too quickly, that was a good, good point. Uh, Real Salt Lake uh, signed Jefferson Saverino to a loan deal. Uh, he's a pretty talented young Venezuelan. He's just shifty and got a good knack for goal. And I think it's another good move. He's a young designated player. It's great when the MLS can bring in, you know, guys who are very young and developing or also are very talented, which is going to help shift the narrative away from the league being a place for old European players to retire. 
Well, you've seen that. I mean, I think it's really important because that's that's sort of how you win. I mean, that's been the FC Dallas model, right? Like, you know, for all the headlines about, you know, Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard, etc., a couple of players, you know, David Villa is finding success for sure, no doubt about it. But a lot of the players who have, you know, been the biggest additions to their clubs have been young South American players, whether it be, you know, Amaro Diaz, who's going to come back for FC Dallas, which I think makes them even more dangerous this year uh, from injury. But, but you know, a guy like him, uh, Diego Valeri, uh, uh, you know, Ichara, you know, like a lot of these guys are the ones who have really made the difference over the past several years. So sure, you know, it's, it's understandable that the European big names, you know, ex players in Europe have drawn attention, but you know, even at NYCFC Pirlo, I don't think he's been benched for, uh, for Yanga Herrera, but the, uh, you know, a Venezuelan there who's, who's getting some time in the middle of the NYCFC midfield and playing well. So I, I think it speaks to the fact that, look, if you're not scouting Central America, South America, and Mexico, uh, as an MLS team, you're, you're probably not going to have too much success because, uh, you know, I think developing young American players and bringing in these these talented players who maybe fill a bit of a, a gap in, in American player development. You know, we don't have a lot of number 10s right now. I think that that's something that's sort of a formula for success for MLS teams. So I think we're going to see plenty more of that. And, and obviously, uh you know, teams like uh, FCD, Portland, NYCFC have sort of uh, set, I guess, a blueprint for maybe signing those players and, and giving them influential roles. Y'all, um, Preston Weatherington, where can we find you on the internet? Yeah, you can give me a follow uh, on Twitter at pdub116. Uh, you can find this show along with uh, my FC Dallas podcast, FCD Talk, on there. And you can uh, you can also find both those shows on the All In Sports Talk Network uh uh, network that I run with Steve Gennaro. You can follow them. Uh, you can follow that network on Twitter at All In Sports Talk, and you can get uh, live updates as to what show is being aired. And Amit, if we want to congratulate you on the union's first of many wins, where can we do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Amit A M I T K M A L L I K. That's my name's initial. Amit K Malik. That's my handle on Twitter. You get lots of tweets about Philly sports and Northwestern sports uh, and the Union and Tottenham. Amit, are you a Tottenham fan? I, I am a Tottenham fan. Oh, my God. Amit, what if he are wasn't we okay this week? about it a lot? <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> then I'd be really mad because you'd be like tweeting about my pain. Are we okay? Uh, I mean, we're, we're not happy. Okay. We, we're happy it was a good year. It doesn't matter about the title. That's we'll we'll kind just of pretend it doesn't matter. I know. We're doing better than last year. We're okay. John Arnold, if we just want to ask you more things or let us know how we're feeling about Tottenham or ask you about the various derbies all over Americas, how can we do that? I'm on Twitter at Arnold, John. You spell out comma, no H in John. And then uh, my Facebook page is sort of active as well. Uh, Facebook.com slash John, again, J-O-N, Arnold Football, like, uh, like football, but in Spanish. So, like uh, so the yeah, right check that football, out. Not the wrong football. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be doing some live chats uh, during the league year, and I also post a recorded video every Monday, sort of uh, running down the top five stories in Mexico, at least according to me. So uh, please, uh, if you're interested, uh, or if you have any questions, I'd be happy to to chat over there. Fantastic, you guys. Thank you so much. You could find this one um, at World Football Index, which somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I believe is on iTunes and SoundCloud. Did I get the technology right? Sounds I think good to so. Me. Yep. All right. That sounds good to me. Look at me go. 
um, along with a whole lot of other world football indexy things, including Manu talking about Russian football in ways that I actually understand, even with his accent, even with just all the names running through. Um, that was my subway commute this morning was Manu taking me through the intricacies of Russian football. So there's a lot going on there. Um, next week, uh, we're going to catch up and see um, what happened and and potentially know who's down and who's up. And, and um, we'll talk about that. And maybe Amit and I will talk about our Tottenham feelings. Who knows? But we will hopefully um, see you, hear you again next week for another round of Don't Call It Soccer. Thank you for joining us. Because